6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Misser completes his session entitled, The Poetical Books. Let's go to the psalm, next psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. We all know, we've all heard this psalm. I shall not want, it means I shall not lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures, which means I shall not lack provision. He leads me beside the still waters, it means I shall not lack peace. He leads me in the paths of righteousness, I shall not lack guidance. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I shall not lack courage in the dark hour. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. See, I shall not lack true comfort. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. I shall not lack protection, preservation, honor. Thou anointest my head with oil. I shall never lack joy. The oil speaks of joy. I shall, my cup runneth over. I shall never lack fullness of blessing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall not lack divine favor during my earthly life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I shall not lack a heavenly home when my earthly tour is over. Incredible psalm. We've all heard it. Never tire of it. You really get to appreciate the psalms when you go through the dark valleys. There are psalms that may not mean much to you now. They will when you retreat to them in times of stress. Now, there's seven compound titles of God in the Bible. Jehovah Yireh, which is the Lord will provide. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord healeth. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace. Yahweh Tzitkanu, the Lord our righteousness. Yahweh Shammah, the Lord ever-present. Yahweh Nitsi, the Lord our banner. Yahweh Ra'ah, the Lord our shepherd. And each one of these is in the psalm. Each one of these is in the psalm, in effect. But I want to talk to you about Psalm 2. It's one of the most strangest psalms. Psalm 2, the second psalm. You need to take this down on your notes and figure out who's talking to who. There's three guys having a conversation here. And I'll let the cat out of the bag. I believe it's the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Who's talking here? Holy Spirit, I believe. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Boy, boy, boy. Now the next verse, verse 6, I think is the Father speaking. Yea, have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then I believe the Son is now speaking, quoting the Father. I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen of, for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. I believe the Son is quoting the Father. The Father said that, and the Son's quoting him. You follow me? 
Meanwhile, now the Holy Spirit takes over again. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Strange war counsel. It's the Trinity talking to themselves, I believe. And they're talking about the, earth, the kings of the earth coming, taking up war against them, and how silly and futile that's going to be. And God is going to express His displeasure. I believe this is the heavenly side of Armageddon and the Second Coming and all of that. There are other psalmic groups. There's the Hallelujah Psalms, a handful of those. There's the Penitential Psalms, the Imprecatory Psalms, the Acrostic Psalms. There's even Psalm 119, which has 22 sections, one for each Hebrew letter, and every line in that section starts with that Hebrew letter. It has a section of six, each section is 16 lines with eight couplets, each couplet beginning with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Incredible design in these things. Proverbs. Proverbs are not hymns, they're prudence through precept. You see, Psalms is aimed at a devotional life. Proverbs is aimed at our practical life. Pro, for, verba, words. The term refers to a very terse maxim. Little, separate little maxims. See, a proverb does not argue, it simply assumes. Solomon wrote 3,000 of these, according to 1 Kings 4. They were arranged, we believe, during the reign of Hezekiah. The organization is pretty simple. They extol wisdom, 15 sonnets rather than Proverbs. There are two monologues. There are maxims enjoining prudence. There's 375 aphorisms with couplets, 16 epigrams. Unless you're into rhetoric, this probably doesn't mean a lot to you. There are more maxims on prudence, 7 epigrams, 55 couplets, 13 says of Agur. There's an oracle of Lemuel's mother, an acrostic on the virtuous woman, which we will take a look at. The structural method is they're contrastive Proverbs. They're antithetical compact presentation of some kind of contrast, striking contrast. There are completed Proverbs. These are where the second line agrees or carries or amplifies the first. See, not, there isn't a standard pattern. Sometimes they're offsets. Sometimes they contrast. Sometimes they complete. And then there's comparative Proverbs. They're figures of comparison. And very colorful imagery. Let's, you know, a fair woman without discretion is like a jewel of gold in a swine's snout. <laughs> that's descriptive. And that's obviously a contrast, right? Then there's a completed one. As cold water to a thirsty soul is like good news from a far country. Boy, it captures a, a snippet of life, doesn't it? Maybe you have to have some of those experiences to really have this grab you. Uh, comparative. The tongue of a nagging woman is a continual dripping on a very rainy day. <laughs> These are colorful imagery. Pictures and analogies. The sluggard is the sluggard who is like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes of his employer. <laughs> Are you one of those? No hands, please. The offended brother who is harder to win than a strong city. How interesting. How, how true that is in your family. Huh? The coming of poverty like an armed man to the slothful. Wise reproof is to an earring of gold on an obedient ear. Riches flying away on wings like those of an eagle. It's a very graphic language. Very practical, very real. But here's one that we'll just look at. The Mrs. Far Above Rubies. 
There's a gal. And guys, you need to know this one. Proverbs 31, sorry, verse 10. Mrs. Far Above Rubies. She's a good woman. She works diligently. She contrives prudently. And she be behaves uprightly. Very eloquently portrayed. She's a good wife. She seeks the husband's good. She keeps his confidence and aids his prosperity. She's a good mother. She clothes family wisely. She feeds household well. And she shops sensibly. These are all embodied in Proverbs 31. She's a good neighbor. She helps the poor. She uplifts the needy. And she speaks graciously. You say, there aren't any people like that. Yes, there are. I married to one. Let's move on to Ecclesiastes. The Hebrew is Koheleth, the preacher. This is written by Solomon at the end of his life, and it's often misunderstood. It's his sermon on the natural man's quest for the chief good. Unlike the Proverbs, which are little separate pieces, this is a cumulative treatise which has component parts. Its final conclusion is that all is vanity, but what he's talking about are things under the sun, the material world. It is not pessimistic, it is simply bravely honest. And it has a surprising conclusion that many people miss. You see, it sees beyond life's ironies and wearing repetitions. It sees beyond that to the divine control and future restitutions. You don't catch that unless you watch very carefully. The book of Ecclesiastes. He starts out with his quest by personal experiment. He searched for wisdom and pleasure by personal experiment. Then he quested by general observation ills and enigmas of human society, all leading to frustration. Then his quest was by practical morality, and discovered that material things cannot satisfy the soul. And somehow we have to keep learning that over and over again. The quest uh, reviewed and concluded in the end. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity is his conclusion. There are ten vanities. Human wisdom, wise and foolish alike have the same end, death. Human labor, the worker is no better than the shirker in the final end, he says. Human purpose, man proposes but God disposes. Human rivalry, success brings more envy than joy. Human avarice, much feeds the lust for the elusive more. Much feeds the lust for the elusive more. Human fame, brief, uncertain, and soon forgotten. Fame is brief, but infamy lasts a little longer. Human insatiety. Money does not satisfy, it only feeds others. Human coveting. Gain cannot be enjoyed despite desire. Human frivolity. One only camouflages an inevitable sad end. Human awards. Good and bad often get wrong desserts. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Here's his final significance. Listen carefully what Solomon's saying. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. That astonishes many people. Yes, it sounds real pessimistic. He's just coming. There's nothing new under the sun. He's talking about natural life. It's destined for frustration. Here's a guy who knew. He'd been at the top. He'd experienced it all. And it's all vanity. It's all emptiness. The only thing that counts is to fear God. This is, the, this is his, at the end of the days, he looks back and assesses the wreckage of his life and realizes that's where, this is where it's all at. Well, let's get to the 
Sex Appeal. Song of Songs. Now this is a book that many people get very, uh, either don't know at all or get very embarrassed reading. <laughs> its theme is ultimate love. That's its theme. No book of the Scripture has given rise to more commentaries and opinions than this one. Some say it's an allegory. Some say it's an extended type. Some say it's a drama involving two, some say three main characters. Some say it's a collection of Syrian wedding songs. I go on and on. But I want to point out the book is inspired. There are a lot of views. The Jewish tradition is that the Mishnah and the Talmud and the Targum all view the book as an allegorical picture of the love of God for Israel. That's the view. There are other rabbis that believe it's a handbook for sexual intercourse, husband and wife. Both are true. The church leaders, Hippolytus, Oregon, Jerome, Athanasius, Augustine, and others, viewed the book as an allegory of Christ's love for the bride and the church. And it is. It's all of the above. It's a very, very interesting book. It's a very practical handbook on uh, sexual practice. It is a book of God's relationship with Israel. It's also a book that uh, can have application as an allegory to Christ's thing. The key, of course, is Psalm 45, a song of loves, a royal marriage hymn, and a heavenly bridegroom's involved. So let's get that in mind. Some say it's a suite of seven idols. An idol is a little picture. It comes from the Greek idyllion, which um, comes from third century Sicilian poet. And that's, that's if you're into in, in, interested in structure. But there's, there's seven elements to this that make up the story. But let's cut through this and actually look at the story. Let's look. It's actually an opera. And let's look at the story behind the opera. Solomon is the hero of the piece. And Shulamit is the Cinderella of the piece, if you will. Uh, Shulamit is simply the feminine of Solomon. It's, it's Mr. and Mrs. Solomon is what the terms imply. In the mountain district of Ephraim, uh, King Solomon had a vineyard. That's in chapter 8, verse 11 of this thing. And he led it out to an Ephraimite family of, uh, as keepers. The husband and father apparently had passed away, and there was a mother and at least two sons and two daughters. And the older daughter, called Shulamit, is uh, the Cinderella, is the piece, as I say. Her brothers did not appreciate her, fostered all kinds of hard tasks upon her, uh, denying her the privilege that a growing girl might be expected to uh, enjoy in a Jewish home. He, she says, my mother's sons were angry with me. That makes it sound like maybe they were half-brothers. Okay. She says, my own vineyard I have not kept. In other words, she had no opportunity to look after her own interests. She's so busy with the tasks that they put on. We also get the impression that she had no opportunity to look after herself. She's probably sunburned, but very naturally attractive. Well, finally, a handsome stranger shows up, a shepherd, a stranger shepherd of some kind. And he views her as without blemish. Friendship ripens to affection and finally to love, and he promises to return and to make her his bride. He leaves. His brother, the brothers are skeptical. They taunt her. They regard her as being deceived by this stranger. He's gone a long time. And uh, she would dream of him in darkness and, and uh, distrusted him, despite the time as it wore on. Then one day, a huge cavalcade arrives with attendants of all kinds. The king has sent for you. In obedience, of course, she responds. And when she looks into his face, guess who? The king was the shepherd that had won her heart. 
And that's where she declares, I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. So that's the big climax of the thing. I'm my beloved and his desire is toward me. So that's the opera. There are people that suspect this really was Solomon and a gal by the name of Abishag. Abishag was a beautiful young woman who spent her youth in the fields and vineyards and she was selected, the young gal, attractive gal, to lie beside elderly King David and serve his needs during his dying years. And she came from an area called Shunem, probably in Galilee, but they're not really sure. The text, by the way, is very clear that she, her virginity was not violated. That's in 1 Kings. But Solomon became deeply attracted to her. Adonijah tried to take her to wife, but Solomon had him executed. He was enraged and had him executed. So Solomon's got his eye on this guy. See, Solomon was part of the household at the time that all this happened with David. Abishag was a country girl, a natural beauty. She probably worked in the fields, probably sunburned, but very, very naturally come. Not used to expensive clothes, that sort of thing, from some of the remarks and so forth. But uh, natural beauty, uh, sort of like my, my nan. But, so that's a possibility. And we have just gone through a rather hurriedly uh, skimming uh, a tough time. We've gone through... <laughs> gone through 150 psalms. <laughs> We've gone through a couple of very tough books that are usually misunderstood by the commentators. I was enamored with the summary by Henry Van Dyke. Speaking of the poetical books, it has woven itself into our dearest dreams so that love, friendship, sympathy, devotion, memory, hope put on the beautiful garments of its treasured speech. No man is poor or desolate who has this treasure for his own. When the landscape darkens and the trembling pilgrim comes to the valley of the shadow, he's not afraid to enter. He takes the rod and staff of Scripture in his hand. He says to friend and comrade, Goodbye, we shall meet again. And comforted by that support, he goes toward the lonely pass as one who walks through darkness into light. I like that. as one person's reaction. Job, of course, is an incredible book to study in several levels. Each one of these that we've reviewed in this last hour are really devotional books. They're poetical books. They're not history in the usual sense, although there's much history hidden in there. There's also scientific little tidbits here and there. There's messianic prophecies hidden there. But the real strength and resource of all the books we talked about, especially the Psalms, is comfort in times of stress. There will be times of stress. And some of these you won't even appreciate until you've been through times of stress. But it's something that will become very, very dear. You might just, uh, that's why it is an incredibly good spiritual hygiene as you have your devotional reading, whatever that may be. You should, you should be going through the Bible at your own, in your own style, but include in each morning or each evening a psalm as a front end or a back end to your, your study time. It'll be uh, uh, some of your most precious moments of a day. I might comment just briefly uh, on a couple of other things. There are lots of ways. There's a, there's a difference between studying the Bible, grabbing your commentaries, getting your resources, finding out who is what, and going through all that stuff expositionally. And that's great. That's a place for that. And that should be serious study time. But there's another aspect of the Word of God that many of us fail to be diligent on, and that is just devotional, just to bathe in it. Just bathe in it right on through. Not trying to necessarily deal with some of the paradoxes and details, just, just to bathe in it. That is the way God will speak to you, through His Word. 
One of the things that I've found the most useful, so, some people like to just t take the Bible and read, say, three chapters a day or some, some pace, so they get through the Bible once a year, once every two years, whatever. Different, there's different reading things. And that's, that's, that's not bad. Uh, I've been drawn to a little different style. I keep an electronic Bible with me which has bookmarks in it. What I like to do is have a bookmark in the Torah, a bookmark in the historical books, a bookmark in the poetical books, a bookmark in the prophets, a bookmark in the Gospels. I use Acts as if it was a Gospel. And in the Torah, I treat Joshua as if it was the Torah, but that's mechanics. And uh, anyway, the, the Gospels, the Epistles, and the Book of Revelation. There's about eight of those. And what I try to do is move each bookmark one chapter a day. And the reason I find that so different, it's, it's sort of like a, a, a meal. You don't eat your meat on Mondays, and your potatoes on Tuesdays, and your vegetables on Wednesdays. You like a more balanced diet. I got this basic idea from my wife, because she was, she has, her Bible just oozes bookmarks. She's into all kinds of things. Uh, I find that awkward, because I have a Bible at home that I, that I use for study, but I don't want to take that on trips, for a lot of reasons. But uh, when I got the electronic one, it worked out real neat because I can just move the bookmarks. And it also allows me that way when I, if I'm 15 minutes early for an appointment for a barbershop or something, I just pop it open and knock off one or two of the book, you know, one of the two chapters. But what's neat about it is it, the particular pace I've set for myself takes me through the New Testament three times a year and the Old Testament twice a year. But that's a lot of reading. You may not, you can adjust it to your own style. But that kind of reading isn't study, it's just bathing in it. And it's the way that the Bible increasingly becomes your own, and it's also the way God can use it to speak to you. And that's, especially, that's true of all the books, whether even the Torah, or obviously, or the, the historical books, and certainly the prophets, but it's especially true with the books we just went through, the poetical books. They're comfort, they're warm. And, and uh, this is another place, by the way, where the majesty of the King James appeals to me. Some people find that difficult, the Old English. They prefer one of the modern translations. And that's fine, because we're not talking about study here. We're not talking about, you know, building doctrine. We're not, uh, we're just talking about bathing in it. And I encourage you to, to do that and see what God's going to do. Well, the next time we meet, the next session will be hour nine. And we're going to take the book of Daniel, which is on one hand a historical book, on the other hand a prophecy book. The first is 12 chapters. first six happen to be narrative, very colorful narrative. And the last half, of course, visions. But what makes the book of Daniel pivotal to many people is its focus is on the Gentile world. Most of the Bible sees the world through the lens of Israel. But the book of Daniel is actually translated, switches from Hebrew to uh, the Gentile language of that day from chapters 2 through 7. And it has astonishing prophecies that impact you and I that are unfolding as we speak, visibly. And it'll be one of the most exciting. It is many people who <laughs> know very little else about the Bible uh, write books on the book of Daniel. It obviously is pivotal to understanding the book of Revelation and so forth. But we can't take all the prophets in detail. We're going to pick one. So we'll talk about all of them when we get to the prophets, but we'll take Daniel specifically to get in depth. When we get to Paul's epistles, we'll, take, we'll talk about all the epistles in general, but we'll take one in depth, Romans. We'll sink some holes in depth in a couple of places. We can't do that with all the books. We'll be at this for five years. We're trying to knock this off in 24 one-hour sessions. Not to exhaust the books, 
but to give you a perspective of the whole so you can find your way around so that, so that the whole package will be comfortable to you and, you'll, and so you'll develop a respect to how the pieces fit together. That's really what we're after. Uh, and the book of Daniel will fit that because it's going to be so pivotal to understanding the Gospels and also understand the book of Revelation. So it'll be a fun time. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we, we're awed at how much you love us. We thank you, Father, for giving us this heritage, giving us the benefit of the comfort and the encouragement and the admonitions of these great men that went before us. We thank you for the candor of seeing their failures as well as their successes. And Father, we would pray that through your Holy Spirit you would help us be exceptions and learn from these lessons. We pray, Father, that these lessons not be wasted on us, that we would understand what contributed to those failures, to understand why some of these great men stumbled and fell from what they might have been. We recognize, Father, that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, so that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So, Father, we just thank you for your word. We do pray, Father, that you would just continue to kindle a new fire in each of us for your word, that we each might just partake of these treasures that you vouchsafed into our care. Above all these things, Father, we pray that you would help us grow in our understanding of our Messiah, our Lord and Savior. And we also pray, Father, that you'd help each of us, through your Spirit and through your Word, be ever more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that you put in our path. As we, without any reservation, commit ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Son of David, Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.